Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Celine Gounder, the host of the show. Just so you know, this episode contains descriptions of intimate partner violence. If you or someone you know is experiencing intimate partner or sexual violence, help is available. Here are two resources. You can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. Strong Hearts Native Helpline provides culturally appropriate support and advocacy for Indigenous women. Call 1-844-7-NATIVE or text the corresponding number 1-844-762-8483. Please take care how you listen and with whom. Predators are very calculated, they're very methodical, and, and, and highly intelligent. They know what they're doing. You know, we're invisible to this country. We're invisible when our women go missing, and, and we make for the perfect predatory hunting grounds. Lisa Bruner is a member of the White Earth Ojibwe Nation in Minnesota. She has worked as an advocate for Indigenous survivors of domestic abuse and human trafficking for nearly 20 years. Lisa says many Native women living on reservations lack the most basic access to help when they're in danger. Who do you call when you're in trouble? You need help. 911. Lisa says if there's an emergency on a reservation in the United States and someone calls 911, they may get asked if they're Native. And if you said yes, they said, well, you need to call trouble law enforcement. And then they would hang up on you. 911 would hang up on our members calling for help. Lisa has testified before the Inter-American Court on Human Rights about the limits of 911 services and other hurdles to help Native women. She knows what it's like to be overlooked. Lisa says, growing up, there was a lot of violence around her. When family called 911, oftentimes it was a woman reporting an abusive partner. They got the same message. There's nothing we can do. This Native people, that was my understanding of our legal system. And because nothing ever happened to the man. Indigenous people face high rates of violence in the United States. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention list homicide among the 10 leading causes of death for Native men. A 2015 survey of transgender people in the United States found that more than half of the Indigenous respondents reported they had been sexually assaulted. In an analysis of a 2010 national survey from the CDC, about half of the Native women respondents said they had experienced intimate partner and or sexual violence. So when we're disappearing and are going murdered at such astronomical rates, and we're less than 2% of the total U.S. population, um, we're we're in serious trouble. Among Native survivors of violence, more than 90% reported they had experienced violence from a perpetrator who was non-Native. That's according to a survey funded by the U.S. Department of Justice. That distinction, who is or isn't Native, has big implications for how intimate partner violence is policed and prosecuted in the United States. Historically, laws limited the ability of tribal authorities to prosecute non-Native offenders on Native land a loophole that critics, like Lisa, say created a culture of impunity on reservations. Lisa says non-Native criminals know this when they enter a reservation with bad intentions. She calls it hunting. Non-Natives, in particular white men, know they can come onto our tribal communities and they can hunt us as Native women with impunity because they know that we can't touch them. Our producer Avery Lill spoke with Lisa. 
I know that I've talked to some people who've said that they've been told that like the the perpetrator will say like I'm white. There's nothing that you can do about oh, yes. it. Yes. Yep. That would be in Sliver of the Full Moon. Sliver of a Full Moon is a play about Native women survivors of violence and abuse and their fight to empower tribal authorities to protect their communities. The playwright, a Cherokee lawyer named Mary Catherine Nagel, interviewed Lisa and other Native women about their real-life experiences. Mary Catherine combined those individual stories and recast and fictionalized them to represent the experience of many Native women. Here's Lisa and other women reading during a performance of the play at Harvard University. I must have called a hundred times. Please, can't you do something? The answer was always the same. We can't. He's He's not not enrolled. He's He's not not Indian. Indian. So we don't have jurisdiction. But I kept calling. I called the police. Please help. 911. 911. 911. I need your help. But every time I called, no one showed up. They would just write a report. They always let him go. In this episode, we're going to look at how laws and law enforcement endanger Native people. I would just imagine your own community where certain people didn't have to abide by the law. Lisa Bruner and other Indigenous people are fighting to change the system. I worked hard with other Native women in the country to pass VAWA 2013. VAWA, the Violence Against Women Act. It's been around since the mid-1990s, but in 2013, when it was reauthorized, Congress added a new provision, one that would expand the jurisdiction of tribal courts over non-Native people on tribal land. And just days before we released this episode, there was a new development. I'm particularly thrilled to say that after a decade of false starts, this package will finally reauthorize the Violence Against Women Act. In March 2022, after nearly 10 years, Congress acted on VAWA again something advocates say will further empower tribal authorities to protect Native women. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder, and this is American Diagnosis. Lisa Bruner says the violence Indigenous people experience today is not random. Laws and court decisions from decades, even centuries ago, shaped the lives of indigenous people in this country. One way this history lives on is through something called the Marshall Trilogy. That's a series of Supreme Court cases from the early 1800s. Those decisions became the legal foundation for how the U.S. government thinks about tribal sovereignty. We unpacked one of these cases in our first episode this season— That case, Johnson v. McIntosh, was about whether or not indigenous people had the right to sell their land to non-native settlers. Even though indigenous people have lived on and cared for the land since before the arrival of colonial settlers, the court decided native people could not sell it because they never owned it. Sounds convoluted, right? But the case established that the federal government owns tribal land. In the majority opinion from the court, Here's how Chief Justice John Marshall explained that. He said Native nations couldn't claim land because they are, quote, savages and heathens. That's Mary Catherine Nagel. I am a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, and I am an attorney. I'm a partner at Pipestem and Nagel Law, and I'm also a playwright. Mary Catherine says the shortfalls in the legal system today are rooted in history. 
the discriminatory reality that led to a lot of the legal regimes that supported violence against Native women, you know, have not been examined, dismissed, overturned. And until they are, the violence is just going to continue. We're going to dig into just one of the ways U.S. law creates loopholes for non-Native offenders. It arises from another Supreme Court case, Oliphant versus Suquamish Indian Tribe. The 1978 decision builds on the definition of tribal sovereignty established by the Marshall Trilogy. The fallout from Oliphant will eventually lead us to the Violence Against Women Act right up to the present day. So let's get into Oliphant. Mary Catherine sets the scene. It's late August in 1974. We are at the Suquamish Indian Tribes Reservation. They're a tribal nation located in the state of Washington today. It's Chief Seattle Days, an annual festival that honors a Suquamish leader who died in the mid-1800s. There are usually canoe races, a salmon bake-off, music, and a ceremony at Chief Seattle's gravesite. The celebration that day draws thousands of people. One of them is Mark Oliphant, a 21-year-old plumber who grew up and lives on the reservation. Mark is white. He's not a member of the Suquamish tribe, a fact that's about to be really important. Late in the evening, Mark Oliphant gets into an altercation. He's charged with assaulting a tribal officer and resisting arrest. But he takes his case to federal court, arguing that he was unlawfully detained. He said, nope, you can't arrest or prosecute me. I'm a non-Indian, and it violates my constitutional rights to be um, arrested or prosecuted for my behavior on your land. He took that argument all the way up to the Supreme Court. We'll hear arguments first this morning in... Uh... Elephant against the uh, Suquamish Indian tribe. Mr. Malone, you may proceed whenever you're ready. Mark Oliphant's attorney said that the Suquamish tribe only has authority over crimes on Suquamish land that Suquamish citizens commit. On the other hand, attorneys supporting the Suquamish tribe argue that if the crime took place on tribal land, then tribal authorities should be able to take action, regardless of who committed the crime. Barry Ernstoff was the lawyer for the Suquamish that day. He told the justices that denying tribes the right to police their reservations could have troubling consequences. It would make tribes completely dependent on the federal government for their protection. Indian reservations are generally far from urban centers. I can tell you as attorney for the tribe how difficult it is to get the FBI to come out to an Indian reservation to investigate something other than a major crime. This was a problem the Suquamish had already been dealing with. Ernstoff reminded the justices that before the day Mark Oliphant was arrested, tribal law enforcement had requested help from the county and federal government. Celebration in the Oliphant case, and the county gave one deputy for an eight-hour period, and the federal government provided no one. Had the tribal police not effected this arrest, and had the tribe not prosecuted it, Oliphant would have gone unpunished. Justice William Rehnquist read the court's decision. The court ruled in favor of Mark Oliphant. As of March 6, 1978, tribal courts no longer had the right to try non-Native defendants for crimes committed on their land. By submitting to the overriding sovereignty of the United States, Indian tribes necessarily gave up their power to try non-Indian citizens of the United States except in a manner acceptable to Congress. This fact has long been recognized I remember when I read Oliphant. I can't believe it. My dad called me. Tribal council convened an emergency meeting. Said, you better read this. 
That's a recording from Mary Catherine Nagel's play, Sliver of a Full Moon, which dramatized the reaction to the Oliphant decision. The loss of jurisdiction shocked many indigenous leaders. Tribal nations with their own court systems, like the Cherokee, had been prosecuting non-native people in tribal courts for crimes on tribal land as early as the 1820s. It wasn't long before some non-native people living on reservations realized they were untouchable. Again, sliver of a full moon. My stepfather. My husband. He's he's non-native. Not enrolled. And after Oliphant? He began to realize. After Oliphant. He figured it out. After Oliphant? He knew. It didn't matter if I had bruises. Or cuts. Or bleeding. Or a broken bone. Because of Oliphant. He could kill me, and it wouldn't matter. Alfred Urbina is the Attorney General for the Pasquayaki Tribe in Southern Arizona. Before that, he was a police officer. He's been dealing with the world Oliphant created his entire career. I would just imagine your own community where certain people didn't have to abide by the law. And what does that do to a community when that happens? Alfred testified in front of the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs that Oliphant has created safe havens in Indian country for non-Native offenders. You know, you have violence that continues to get worse over time. It escalates. It leads to violent crime like stabbings, shootings. He says when tribal law enforcement responds to an incident, the first step isn't to decide how they can help. First, they have to determine if they can help. You're looking at who's a tribal member, who's not a tribal member, and whether or not the crime that's been committed is a crime that we have jurisdiction for before you can figure out where this crime is going to be prosecuted, whether in state court, tribal court, or federal court. If it sounds confusing, that's because it is. It's so convoluted and complex. There's this patchwork of laws that create a system that makes it hard for people to receive any type of justice. Alfred says when tribal law enforcement responds to an incident and doesn't have jurisdiction over the person who committed the crime, there aren't many options. The most you could do is drive them off reservation, hoping that they don't come back. But he says that often people do come back, especially if they're in a relationship with someone else who lives on the reservation. They know that tribes don't have jurisdiction. We were told often, you guys can't do anything to me. So who's left to help? According to the Oliphant decision, the federal government. But that's cold comfort for many living on Pasquayaki land. In his experience as attorney general, Alfred says many cases aren't deemed serious enough for federal involvement. Imagine if you had to wait until you were stabbed or shot or strangled for a case to be picked up by the federal government. The federal government declines to prosecute a third of crimes in Indian country, That's according to a recent Department of Justice report. Two-thirds of those crimes involve assault, murder, or sexual assault. The Supreme Court stripped tribes from going after non-Native offenders. It would take an act of Congress to give that power back. Here's Lisa Bruner again. When our tribal coalitions met in 2002, it was asked, If we could have anything and everything to protect us as Native women, what would it be? 
And I said, we need to have criminal jurisdiction over non-natives on our lands. That was the first thing out of my mouth. Lisa joined a coalition of native domestic abuse survivors, tribal leaders, and other allies to make that happen. They decided that their best chance was the Violence Against Women Act, or VAWA. The law was originally passed in 1994, and it was up for reauthorization in 2013. They wanted to add a provision that would give back some jurisdiction to the tribal courts. The 2013 VAWA reauthorization passed the Senate, but it faced an uphill battle in the House. Advocates like Lisa Bruner, Mary Catherine Nagel, and others shared their stories. Tribal leaders like Alfred Urbina lobbied lawmakers. Then on the day of the vote, the eyes started coming in. I remember watching on TV as the votes were counted, and then as the law was passed. I was there when President Obama signed the Violence Against Women Act into law on March 7th, 2013. I witnessed him say in front of all these people who were there, he said, today, you know, we're restoring and we're recognizing and affirming the inherent right of tribal nations to protect their women. Tribal governments have an inherent right to protect their people and all women deserve the right to live free from fear. And that is what today is all about. And I just never in a million years did I think I would hear a United States president say those words. But there was one big exception, the state of Alaska. When we come back, we'll hear about the limitations of VAWA 2013 and how they inspired reforms in the new 2022 law. That's after the break. President Barack Obama signed the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act into law in 2013. It expanded tribal nations' authority over non-Native people who commit crimes on their lands within limits. That's because the letter of the law says VAWA 2013 only applies to tribes in Indian country. We could do a whole other episode about the story behind that, but for now, just know that previous law excluded more than 200 federally recognized tribes in Alaska. VAWA 2013 only covered one tribe in the entire state. Alaska wasn't the only exception. Several reservations in Maine were also excluded. Even tribes that can implement VAWA are dealing with their own limitations. The 2013 law was very narrow. It only covered violations of protection orders and domestic violence. It's important to remember that domestic violence has a legal definition. It refers to crimes committed by a current or former spouse or an intimate partner, which is legalese for people who are dating or in another relationship outside marriage. It also meant that if a Native woman were attacked on tribal land by a non-Native person she didn't know, a stranger the tribal courts would once again have their hands tied. VAWA 2013 also didn't cover crimes related to children. All this troubled Alfred Urbina, the Pasquayaki Attorney General. There are specific gaps in the system that we saw and that we could not plug. And so our data that we collected from these cases revealed that we had dozens of kids who witnessed this violence or who were actually assaulted. VAWA 2013 may have been narrow in its scope, but it did start to have an impact. The Pasquayaki were one of the first tribes approved by the Department of Justice to start enforcing the law. 
the tribe boosted investments in its police force and court system. Attorney General Alfred Urbina says some couldn't believe it when police started arresting non-Native people on domestic violence charges. Some of them were like, hey, you can't arrest me. One of them said, you don't have jurisdiction. They were surprised. Then, in 2017, the Pasquayaki court's ability to prosecute domestic violence was tested for the first time since VAWA passed. The case involved a non-Native man who lived on the Pasquayaki reservation. He had pleaded guilty to strangling his wife the year before, according to a press release from the tribe. He was on probation. He went back to the house, and he destroyed property. The property of his wife, a Pasquayaki citizen. The tribe arrested him and prosecuted him. Eventually, that case went to a jury trial. They found him guilty for that crime. Alfred says the details of the case weren't exceptional. What was exceptional was that the case happened in a tribal court. That was the first jury trial conviction of a non-Indian offender since the 1978 Oliphant case. Before VAWA 2013, the tribe couldn't address cases like these. These victims were being left without any recourse. They were going to bed at night afraid. Alfred says he watched violence escalate on the reservation in the decades after Oliphant because non-Native abusers weren't held accountable. Now that the tribe is able to address intimate partner violence cases, he says that's changing. I believe that this program and these types of cases have made our community safer. Attorney General Alfred Urbina says VAWA has had a positive impact on the Pasquayaki Reservation. But many tribal nations can't say the same. Under the 2013 version of VAWA, only 27 of more than 500 federally recognized tribes were able to use their new powers. Alfred says this has a human cost. It is depressing to know that those are victims that are in the exact same situation that our victims were a few years ago. Tribes got expanded jurisdiction under the 2013 law, but not the resources to enforce it. The population size and resources of tribal nations vary widely across the United States. About half of tribes don't have their own police departments. Nearly a third don't have a tribal court. One of these tribes is the White Earth Nation. That's the tribe that indigenous rights activist Lisa Bruner belongs to. VAWA is not instituted by my tribe here at this time because we don't have the ability to develop the infrastructure that it requires. When VAWA 2013 passed, Lisa says she didn't realize how much time and money it would take for White Earth Nation to satisfy federal requirements. Facility upgrades, new tribal codes, building new jails, attorneys, and judges. It all adds up. After the fact, I'm like, oh my God, all that work. Lisa made peace with it. She says VAWA 2013 was a huge success, even if her tribe wouldn't benefit from it. Especially when we were told as Native women that this was never going to happen. But that might be changing. On the evening of March 10th, 2022, Senator Chuck Schumer urged the Senate to pass a new spending bill. Between the line items to keep the federal government open, there was a bipartisan bill to renew and expand VAWA. This very needed, important bill to protect those who are abused has languished in limbo for far too long. The Senate debated the spending bill for hours, and then the votes came in. On this vote, the yeas are 68, the nays are 31. Congress passed VAWA 2022. 
In the wake of that news, we reached out again to activist Lisa Bruner. So I just happened to be scrolling on Facebook and I seen one of my Facebook friends posted. I'm like, wait, what? What do you mean? And I start reading through that. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm just like, oh, my God. (laughs) We got it. Lisa worked for years to get the 2013 law passed, and she saw firsthand how limited it was. There were so many crimes that tribal courts still couldn't punish. Now, with the new 2022 law, tribes would be able to prosecute non-Native offenders for a longer list of crimes. Things like child violence, sexual and dating violence, obstruction of justice, assaulting tribal law enforcement, stalking, violating protection orders, and sex trafficking. VAWA 2022 also guaranteed that the tribes in Alaska and Maine, tribes left out from the previous law, now finally had these powers too. Our tribes now have the jurisdiction, the criminal jurisdiction to hold non-Native offenders accountable for the crimes and the violence they commit against our peoples. But Lisa has seen over the years how expensive it can be to make that right a reality. Remember, her own tribe didn't have the resources to implement VAWA back in 2013. The 2022 law provides $25 million a year to help tribes like hers build capacity so they can handle these cases too. As the day passed, Lisa's delighted surprise at the news started to mellow. As I sit and reflect, I'm like, why the hell? Why the hell does it take 20 years? Why does it take 20 years for the United States government to pass an act to completely hold all offenders accountable and to at least finally protect us? It just makes me want to cry, you know? Playwright Mary Catherine Nagel interviewed Lisa for the play Sliver of a Full Moon shortly after VAWA 2013 passed. They were in Washington, D.C. at the National Museum of the American Indian. It's dark out, and we're sitting in the Native American Museum. I asked her, I said, um, what, what does the passage of VAWA mean to you? What does this signify? And I thought about that for a moment, and I looked outside, I looked out the window, and I was looking at the moon. I said, VAWA is just a sliver of a full moon of what we need to be protected as Native women. I thought that concept, that image, what she said, so captured what we're trying to do a sliver of full moon. I just said, can I make this the title of the play? And she said, absolutely. That moon got a little fuller with the passage of VAWA 2022. It's not the totality of everything that we need, right? But, but you know, f- the full moon is, is bright. We're just starting with the moon. <laughs> I'm after the universe. <laughs> <laughs>
This season of American Diagnosis is a co-production of Kaiser Health News and Just Human Productions. Additional support provided by the Burroughs Welcome Fund and Open Society Foundations. This episode of American Diagnosis was produced by Zach Dyer, Avery Lill, and me. We're funded in part by listeners like you. We're powered and distributed by Simplecast. Our editorial advisory board includes Jordan Bennett Begay, Alistair Bitsoy, and Brian Pollard. Tanya English is our managing editor. Una Tempest does original illustrations for each of our episodes. Our intern is Brian Chen. Excerpts from the play Sliver of a Full Moon, courtesy of the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard University. Special thanks to Gina Lopez. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. Additional music from the Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend about it today. And if you haven't already done so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. The An Arm and a Leg podcast is another Kaiser Health news show we think you'll like. It's about the cost of healthcare and, importantly, about what consumers can do about it. If you have a healthcare story to tell, join host Dan Weissman. He's gathering a community to offer empathy and sometimes a good dark laugh about our health system. Follow Just Human Productions on Twitter and Instagram to learn more about the characters and big ideas you hear on the podcast. And follow Kaiser Health News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Subscribe to our newsletters at khn.org so you never miss what's new and important in American healthcare, health policy, and public health news. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. Thanks for listening to American Diagnosis. Mm-hmm.